As Herb Blinder noted in introducing me, I am, or rather recently I did a book, it was published a year ago, so it's not all that recent, on American freedom and the radical right, inspired by the, the attacks of the moral majority, Mr. Falwell and others, on humanism, and in some instances, on ethical culture. I have the honor of having been picked out for attack by Jerry Falwell himself, and regard that as something perhaps that I should engra have engraved on my tombstone if I were to have a tombstone. Although I hope that Mr. Falwell will, in the very near future, be completely forgettable and denied even that distinction. I had uh, written, or rather I had prepared and given an address in New York, which became in modified form the first chapter of this book on the radical right, which Norman Lear had uh, discovered through an assistant of his in New York. She happened to be listening and wrote the Society for a copy and got a tape. And uh, Norman Lear asked for me to come to his hotel suite and join him for breakfast because he wished to talk over what the right was doing. This time he was only planning what has become his organization, People for the American Way. And he asked for permission to reprint that address or portions of that address, he did so, and a copy of one in one of his early promotional uh, materials, he quoted a paragraph from that address, and it fell into the hands of Jerry Falwell. Falwell quoted it, I can only paraphrase it since I don't have the text in front of me, but I said that the real obscenity, since the radical right is always talking about humanists have brought obscenity into American life, pornography and this and that, I said the real obscenity uh, comes from those who exploit religious fear and prejudice. It comes from fascism disguised as Christianity and continued along that line in a few parallel sentences. Falwell, in the fundraising letter, sent this out as Norman Lear quotes Edward Erickson and the quote following, now says Falwell, with people like that, after me and you good Christians, please send me $25. And he sent out about two million of these letters. So inadvertently, I helped him raise funds. I'm not turned out to be too successful in raising funds myself. Reflecting on the attacks on humanism, I was uh, moved to prepare and deliver this address in New York, which is of course not part of the book, on relative ethics in relation to responsibility in ethics. The charge of the religious authoritarians has always been humanism can have no objective, significant ethical system. And some of them go so far as to say that if you are a humanist, you believe that anything goes. What is right for you is right. If it feels good, do it. And it is on such a superficial examination of the meaning of relativity in ethics that an entire population has been deceived into believing that as humanists, as people who derive our ethics from human experience and reflection on the nature of human life, that we can have no ethical system other than preference.
or self-interest or greed? Well, let's examine that because it is my argument that it is relativity that demands ethics. It is the relational character and relative, relativity is simply that which is relational to something else that makes possible ethics at all. The publication of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species can, I think, be argued as the most momentous event in intellectual history, including religious history. Evolution had been set forth with, with remarkable clarity by the pre-Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece, as recorded in that beautiful poem of Lucretius, reflecting back on the views of Democritus and other of the pre-Socratic materialists. But it remained for Darwin to place evolution on a secure scientific foundation, to make it the unifying idea in our conception of who we are and what our place is in this universe. Now, of course, there were many particulars that remained unknown to Darwin and his contemporaries, knowledge of the mechanism of the transmission of inherited traits, for example, had to await the development of the modern science, the fairly recent science of genetics. But none of these advances and the modifications of evolutionary theory that they entail detract in the least from Darwin's accomplishment. On the contrary, the steady accretion of evidence in many fields, all buttressing Darwin's insight and filling in the details of the grand architecture of evolution, the complex array of forces in evolution testify to the genius of that Darwinian conception. Even so, now just a century and a quarter after Darwin published, the civilized world has yet to assimilate his ideas where they touch on human nature and ethics. In many respects, we still live in a pre-Darwinian universe and are infinitely poorer because of it, especially in ethics. Where the physical sciences are concerned, we travel by spaceship. But when we apply our thinking to moral and social questions, we hobble about aimlessly on the broken down snowshoes of an ice age mentality. By and large, we refuse to apply what we have learned from evolutionary science to human conduct. This failure, I would note, is not limited to fundamentalist preachers who insist on deducing their science from a few arbitrarily chosen and arbitrarily interpreted passages of ancient scripture. At a more sophisticated level, the same disdain for evolutionary thought as a key to human understanding is commonplace in the realms of philosophy, politics, and the arts. Those of you who are middle-aged or more will remember a generation ago when the celebrated scientist and novelist C.P. Snow decried the split between the two cultures the realm of science and the realm of humanities and the arts. But in much of the discussion that followed, the genius of the problem, the core, the crux of the problem was ignored. The crisis of the two cultures exists because we have not yet accepted fully the implications of evolutionary theory, naturalistic theory, 
and what evolutionary theory has to teach us about our social relations and functioning as human beings. And without this understanding, science fails because science is not scientific enough and becomes mere technology. And the humanities fail because the humanities are not humanistic enough, because they are not grounded sufficiently in an understanding of human needs, human relationships, human realities. No thinker of the past hundred years saw this more clearly than the Ver Vermont-born philosopher and educator John Dewey. In 1859, the very year that The Origin of Species was published, Dewey was born. He was vigorous and still working more than 90 years later. He died in 1952, spanning the years 1859 to 1952. If we wish to understand where our civilization has gone off course, why religious philosophy and ethics in our time are sterile and repetitive and redundant, we should ponder what this greatest American philosopher, this most characteristically American thinker, and I say that not in a jingoistic sense, but in the sense of this world people that I talked about earlier. We should understand what John Dewey had to say about evolution and ethics. It was the passion of his labors to show that our ideals, our values, our ethical relationships are just as much developments of evolutionary history as the dexterity of our hands or our gift, it isn't a gift, it's a long development, of binocular vision. Dewey never tired of stressing the essential function of social relationships and cooperative living in enabling the weak human species to evolve and to survive. And it wasn't one before the other. Social living created evolution, evolution created social living and, and ethics. Our codes of behavior have made us what we are physically as well as mentally. Going back to the social animals. Consider the precarious situation of our remote ancestors, this hairless primate or primate on the way of losing its hair, this cousin of the great apes, when they took their first hesitant steps toward a distinctly human identity. As animals, our ancestors had serious handicaps. We are probably, or we were probably, a very timid and timorous species. We were not as agile and powerful as many of our predatory competitors. Even more seriously, and even more a prophecy of things to come, the human infant depends upon its mother for a much longer period than is the case with the lion cub, or even of our near relative, the ape. The human mother must care for her newborn while several older children still demand constant supervision and protection. And the human mother cannot accomplish this without the support of a stable, supportive social group. We can observe the effects on behavior of this tribal bonding in producing mutual family and tribal support, even among our primate cousins, the baboons, on the savannas of East Africa today. Animals that have evolved a pattern of community living that increases the chances of survival both for the group and for the individual though it calls occasionally for the individual to risk or sacrifice that individual life. Thus, even before we became distinctively human, we were already dependent on our ability to behave as social beings. This social nature, 
which in the ant or the termite appears to be purely instinctive, in the higher animals requires a complex process of learning, of conditioning, of socialization. An infant money, a monkey, as you will remember from your high school psychology, an infant monkey deprived of its mother does not develop into a healthy, fully functioning animal, even if all of its physical needs are met. The abandoned children of the streets in New York City or here in Washington, who even at the age of 12 or 14 rob and then remorselessly kill their victims, deprecating their victims as geese, geese to be plucked, geese to be killed, these morally arrested criminals are frightening reminders that no one is born human. No. Not without the socialization process. We are born only with a predisposition to develop as social beings, a potentiality that must be nurtured and learned. The adolescent killers of the street feel no pangs of conscience because social feelings and felt obligations do not extend beyond the gang. Such feelings have been undeveloped or displaced in the course of development. Whatever glimmerings of love and compassion they may have experienced as infants and young children were overridden by the traumas of neglect and rejection. The hurt of frustration and abandonment is thus transformed, transformed into cruelty, into contempt for others. The social feeling that Alfred Adler's and others, others made an important part of their psychology. That social feeling turns against itself and becomes rage, becomes destructiveness. We shall not conquer the problem of violent crime, crime in our streets or the incomparably greater collective crime of war until we abandon our sentimental treatment of the moral nature as a sublime but feeble gift from heaven. Too exalted, too rarefied to make a practical difference in the real world. I think nothing makes me more impatient than when people talk about how feeble the moral feelings are, the moral sense. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. We must understand that the moral impulse in human being, beings is not weak. It is not sublime. It is overwhelming. It is urgent. It will break through one way or another. The strongest, most earthy, most relentless force in all nature. When it is diverted from healthy development, it simply turns in another direction. It becomes malignant. It becomes demonic. And the demonic, the converse side of the humane and altruistic, is enormously powerful, enormously destructive. How else can you explain the massacres of history, the pogroms, the Holocaust, the villainies which people of one race or tribe have inflicted on others without apparent feeling? Why in Milton's Paradise Lost does Lucifer always get the best lines? But hasn't it always been so in our great drama? In Shakespeare, who towers above Lady Macbeth in determination and will? Who's the strong person in the play? Lady Macbeth. Villainy, savagery, and treachery are not morally flat. They do not represent moral impotence. Far from it. They are not the deeds of socially feeble or indifferent natures, but rather the distortions, the grotesque formations, 
of something fundamentally human and overpowering in human life. And what, is, what strikes us is grotesque. Not something that is alien, not something that is machine-like, always something that is human or a distortion of the human. Look at the horror movies. Those are human faces. The monsters are always humans distorted. And thus willful, conscious evil is a dynamic human attribute. It's not a vacuum, it's not an absence, it's not deprivation alone. It is a dynamic, it is a cultivated trait. And equally, desirable expressions of the moral impulse are cultivated traits. Neither good nor evil come from above or below. They are consequences, they are manifestations of our nature and nurture. John Dewey recognized that a thoroughgoing application of the evolutionary outlook can alone provide an adequate understanding of the foundations of the moral life, of the way in which ideals and values grow and operate. They are inadequately explained by the older dualistic worldviews. Specifically, idealist and supernaturalist philosophies sever human nature. They truncate us and they cut us in half. The ideal values going back to Plato and before Plato to the Orphic religion of ancient Greece were thought to belong to another and higher realm. This conception contained a Neoplatonist and Christian dualism, the view that the universe and all nature is a mechanism, or I, I, I alighted something, this reemerged in Cartesian dualism, this old dualism and Cartesian dualism. And Descartes was convinced that all of the world is a mechanism, that it can all be explained in terms of physics and mathematics, with only the exception of the human mind, which Descartes rather strangely thought and convinced a civilized world of philosophy to accept. But the human mind is an exception. The soul is an exception. That comes from God. It doesn't interact with the physical world. It only parallels the physical world. In some marvelous, mysterious way, your mind operates freely. You have free will. But your material organism is all controlled and conditioned by a mechanistic universe. Somehow these work together in perfect harmony. Amazing. Impossible. Absurd. And disastrous. The consequences of this belief on ethics and on religion have been devastating. It is said that two centuries ago, physiologists who accepted the Cartesian dualism did not hesitate to dissect living dogs. They would stretch these animals on their backs, dislocating painfully their bones, drive nails through their paws to hold them firmly on a board, and they would dissect the living animal. And why and how? Could civilized men justify such behavior? Because, they argued, the animals lacked consciousness and had no capacity to suffer. Suffer, They lacked souls. They were only mechanisms. And we still view much of the animal world through those lenses. It is an ugly example, but hardly exceptional. Dualistic philosophy has visited unspeakable cruelties upon the lower animals and upon human beings alike. And if I may reflect on this, we don't talk about humaneness to animals very often in ethical culture. We're rather species-centric. But I would 
I can only speculate. You and I have not been cats and dogs and cows, and we can't feel as they feel. But when one looks at the organism and its evolutionary development, it seems to me that it is reasonable to assume that these animals that express overwhelming, exquisite pain and joy are not facsimiles of the real thing, that our own capacity for pleasure and pain and fear and terror all come to us already packaged, already ready, ready made in our animal ancestry. All that we have added, and it's a big, it's a big plus, is the ability to abstract and to reason about. But the joy of the animal mother, the fear of the animal in the clutches of an adversary, why think it is any less terrible for that creature than it is for you or me? Except maybe in the reflection that we may have a concept of death that exceeds that of the animal. But of pain, no. An older dualism going back before Descartes, had mortified the flesh, had tortured the body to purify the soul. Any philosophy that separates the realm of mind or intelligence from animal nature is barbarous in theory and in its consequences. The evolutionary conception of life, viewing consciousness or intelligence, as among the adaptations of the evolutionary process, avoids the violence of sundering our beings into two halves. John Dewey saw the importance of recognizing the moral life as the development of our social evolution as an adaptation enabling us to survive and to advance, and thus the need to derive our morality from a god or an authoritative church or an authoritarian creed does not arise. Our moral perceptions are as natural, as deep-seated, as earth-born, as much a part of our makeup as, as human beings as our ability to use language or to adjust to the physical environment. Our moral perceptions are relative, relative to the needs of persons living in community. They grew out of that need of people in community. Thus there cannot be one ready-made uniform moral code constant throughout history any more than there has been one uniform language or one uniform set of culture, uh, other customs and culture. Nevertheless, this does not mean that moral values are purely arbitrary or capricious or self-contained. They cannot be merely selfish or self-serving. If moral values were only matters of individual preference or advantage, even of tribal advantage, they would become, as they have in many instances, obstacles to social living rather than serving as means to achieve social balance and harmony. To say that values are relative is to recognize that their function is relational. They relate us in desirable, life-serving, life-enhancing ways to other people. And they also, in proper development, enable one group to live among other groups without mutual destruction. Therefore, the relativity of values makes for, demands, responsibility and community and ethics. But here, we must make an important qualification. It's here that some of the less prudent advocates of moral relativism go off the rails. They accept what is known in the classroom as sociological relativism. And it's all right if you're studying Samoa or any other culture in the world to say, let's look at that culture in terms of its own values and not prejudge it. That's all right in the encapsulated world 
of a scientific study. But when you start talking about how Samoans and other people interact in one world, how Jews and non-Jews, blacks and whites, Americans and Russian interface with each other, situational ethics and, uh, well, situational ethics cannot be reduced to relative ethics, I will suggest, if you're talking purely in terms of self-contained societies. Sociological relativism has no way to judge the evils of a society. If Americans like to hang people for crime, that's the custom of the place and you can't judge it. If they like to be racists, that's the custom of the society, you can't judge it. If they slaughter their firstborn, the same thing. We must have some sense of a relativity that goes beyond the boundaries, the margins of the tribe or nation. We must indeed arrive at the conception of a pan-human bond, or as Eric Erickson has expressed it, a species-wide identity as human beings. We must say that some things are human and learn to recognize what they entail and the necessities that they impose upon us. In this context, relative ethics properly analyzed are necessarily objective and social. They are not matters of individual taste or of whim or caprice. Those who are fond of saying everything is relative, therefore anything goes, whatever you think is right is right for you, are uttering gibberish. It's a preposterous suggestion and a self-contradiction. What relates one person to another or one society to another society cannot be purely subjective or egocentric. To be relational, to be relative, is to involve oneself with others and thus to be bound by mutual interests and restraints and needs. But the crisis of our age is in the general law of the relative, relativity of values as applied to global society. Societies and nations under contemporary conditions necessarily are thrown together with a greater intimacy, a greater forcefulness than in any previous age. All communities and people are thus bonded to greater or lesser degree. <clears throat> Their interests colliding, <clears throat> interacting, often conflicting. Out of this clash of interests, if the human species is to survive, must come some common denominator of social responsibility. Must come some sense of a human loyalty, of a common identity, a species-wide identity. If only in the limited agreement to coexist without imperiling each other. Thus, while we speak different moral languages and live in different social provinces, in a global environment there must be sufficient agreement on matters affecting mutual survival to permit conflicting cultures to interact and still to recognize each other as human, to be shareholders of one habitation, this earth. That such a human community is already emerging can be observed all around us in the arts, in literature, even in popular culture. Jazz and blue jeans are as familiar in Moscow and Hong Kong as in Houston. And why do think we think we can export blue jeans and import steel, but we can't export and import our ethics? Indeed, we must. Nobel Prize winning authors come from all continents and races, and their works are treasured even by those who can read them only in translation, which would not be possible except for a profound human identity deeper than the cultures and languages that separate mankind. But such a human identity does exist, a strong and gathering consciousness 
overrunning our political institutions and our inherited prejudices. Folk religions with their air of superiority and exclusiveness. At the base of this identity as human beings is the claim of a moral obligation, not the absolute authoritarian morality of a sect or a party, but the evolutionary and democratic morality of the brotherhood and sisterhood we constitute as human beings. Like that first small band of primates, cousins of the apes, we too find the necessity to draw together as a race in order to survive. Think of the moral life as you think of your hands or your feet or your eyes, as organs that enable you to deal with the environment more effectively, that enable you to survive. When we recognize this, rec this reality without reservation, one fact stands out above all else. The more interrelated, the more relational or relative the moral life becomes, the more responsible it becomes. We are enabled to see life whole and are thus able to act on the knowledge that we are both the inheritors and the guardians of an age-long and globally wide venture. All of our science and arts and moral struggles are pages in that chronicle. As human beings, we are just beginning to know who and what we are. The greatest good is to give this human epic a chance to continue, to allow this great scroll of human life to continue to unroll, that the scribe of time and of human ingenuity might record future lines and chapters. A humanist ethics must be, therefore, a global ethics, a humanity-wide ethics, an interracial, intercultural ethics based on the, the equality and worth of every member of that community. Its supreme commandment must be so act that humankind might survive. And it follows from this that heroic racial suicide, heroic national suicide, for whatever cause, can never be an acceptable choice. But if you consider that it has taken our human species and the animal life that has grown up with us, or we have grown up with it, more than a billion years to evolve, and that our globe probably could not crank up this system once again. Its conditions have changed. The ideological quarrels of a century or a millennium are trifling in comparison. Our overwhelming moral responsibility is to do what must be done to preserve freedom and human dignity, yes, but to know that we must preserve them and can preserve them only if the human race is alive. There are no values because our values are all relative to us. And without living members, there is no humanity. And all the values we cherish are extinct. All our ethics, all our statecraft must be gathered by, must be governed by this one final overarching imperative, to safeguard the survival of the human family on this planet. If we agree on that, we can face our other differences responsibly.